Hello and welcome to Running on Joy with Francesca Goodwin, the podcast that celebrates putting one foot in front of the other in whatever form that takes. This is a podcast that explores how we can live in a more connected, creative and compassionate manner for the benefit of our communities, our planet and our own mental and physical health. I'm your host, Francesca Goodwin, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what joy means to them. Running on Joy is ad-free, but if you enjoy the show, please do take a moment to leave a review and give feedback wherever you listen to your podcasts. You might also consider supporting the work of Running on Joy guest Dan Lawson through rubbish shoes and rerun clothing to end the cycle of wastage in the sports clothing and footwear industries. Follow at Rubbish Shoes and at Rerun.Clothing on Instagram for further information. Hello everyone, it's a Thursday today, but you'll probably be listening to this on a Monday, so happy Monday, wherever you are. My guest today is an award-winning poet and novelist with a lifelong passion for running, climbing and the outdoors. They've published three poetry collections, their latest of which, The Illustrated Woman, was shortlisted for the Forward Prize. They've also been shortlisted for the T.S. Eliot Prize, the Costa Prize and won the Fenton Olbra Prize in 2015. They appear regularly on BBC Radio, have taught creative writing for over 10 years and are currently senior lecturer lecturer at Manchester Metropolitan University. Landscape is an important presence in their writing and many of their poems have been composed whilst walking or running in the Cumbrian Fells. Their first full-length non-fiction book, A Line Above the Sky, which recently won the Boardman Tasker Prize for Mountain Literature, is a love letter to losing oneself in physicality, dovetailing the acts of climbing and bringing a child into the world in a dance that melds nature writing and memoir to explore why humans are drawn to danger, how we can find freedom in pushing limits, attitudes towards women who do so, and the question of ownership of one's body. As a woman living in a body that can sometimes feel like a battleground, their words have been a companion to me in low moments, as well as lighting a fire to continue when the world screams for you to stop. I am delighted, after that lengthy introduction, you can tell how passionate I am about your work and so excited to chat to you. Such a beautiful introduction. Sorry, that was was really touching me, actually. Oh, bless you. Thank you. I'm now going to let the lovely, lovely lady um, in front of me introduce herself in the manner of her choosing and welcome her to the podcast. Hello. Well, thanks so much for having me on on your wonderful podcast. And yeah. That's one of the nicest. Uh, that's one of the nicest things that I could hope for anyone to say about my work. And the, the body as battleground is is definitely something that I kind of want to explore. I suppose in my my writing and to hear it to, it, to hear it reflected back in that way is um, it's kind of what you do it for. It's, it's it's what I'm what I'm doing it for is to to make those moments of recognition or whatever. It, it really does make it feel like. Um, you know, writing can be quite lonely, as can running, um, and those the your interaction with other other artists, um, with with other athletes, um, and with with readers is the kind of the nice core at the heart of it all. So yeah, um, I'm based in Sheffield. Um, I grew up in Derbyshire, and uh, yeah, I've I've kind of uh, run 
for most of my life since I was about 11 or 12, I would say. That's all I would uh, add to introduce myself, Amazing. I guess. Amazing. And you are Helen Moore as well. <laughs> that is indeed my, yes. With the tattoo on your foot that's stopping you from running at the moment. Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's probably something psychological uh, going on there, and I keep I, I seem to be finding things that that small things that sabotage my running in minor ways uh, all the time at the moment. And I'm starting to think I'm meant to be training for the London Marathon 2023, so I'm now starting to wonder if this is a a, a kind of a, yeah. A secret strategy, a procrastination strategy. <laughs> but the foot tattoo is nearly healed now, so I can't use it as an excuse for for many more days. I think I'm officially allowed to run again tomorrow. In fact, you can't put it off. Oh, London, that's amazing. Also, we've just we were just chatting before about kind of that where I live is good for sort of flat training, and and you live in a very hilly part of the world. So maybe we should do a house swap or something for a while, yeah. so you can. <laughs> great idea you can come in and schlep around the streets of rugby you can come and run in the fells there's actually nowhere that I can go from my house and I think this has been true of every house that I've lived in in Sheffield there's no run that I can go on that doesn't involve either a quite steep downhill or a steep uphill at the very outset of the run oh, wow. um, so you always end up either starting with a fiendish kind of hill or finishing with it which I'm not sure which is What's worse? Um, I don't know. What would you choose? I don't know. <laughs> I'm. I don't know. I think I'm a bit of a masochist. I quite like that hill at the end where you're just like, I'm nearly there. I'm gonna go up. I'm feeling like Superwoman or something. That's <laughs> when it's at the beginning. It's a bit like, oh, <laughs> just yeah. Like, <laughs> and you burn yourself out, and you start your run with sort of a feeling of lactic acid in your in your legs. <laughs> when I used to sort of. Um, dabble in a bit of fell running um the, the, in Derbyshire when I was growing up there was quite a, an active well there still is quite an active fell running circuit sort of shorter distances and stuff like that and I always preferred the uphill sections to the downhill um I, I don't know if that's a common thing or if you've ever experienced that but I, I find, find running down fells and mountains and stuff like that quite um Quite intimidating, I think, somehow, that feeling of gathering. It's probably the same reason why I don't really like skiing and things like that. Mm. Um, it could be to do with being a, a climber, maybe, and being sort of trained to to worry about falling as a, a sort of thing you're trying to avoid. Um, and then suddenly to, to let yourself go and go down a hill feels a little bit... Um, yeah, it's the lack of, lack of control, isn't it? The lack of control. I imagine being a climber, it's all it's kind of quite calculated. I've never I've never climbed really mm. very seriously, but um, but the idea of you kind of having some sort of mastery over your body and things, and then suddenly being instructed to just like just let go and do the airplane arms and sort of fall That's downhill. Cool. You're like, what? <laughs> what is this? <laughs> But then if you're like me and, and if if you enjoy the uphill sections more than downhill, you've always got this fear that the person behind you on the downhill is going to career straight <laughs> into you and knock you off the path. So it's uh, it's kind of bad, bad both ways. I need to I need to improve my confidence with doubt, the skill of downhill running, I think. I'm just going to share a really silly story that this reminds me of. So when I was like, um, I think I must have been 14 and in the 
in the French department at school, modern languages department, there was quite a steep staircase. Um, you can see why I fall over on staircases now. But like, I suddenly had this thought when I was on this staircase of, I want to be a flying squirrel. So I just kind of like jumped. <laughs> this is when I was quite an awkward teenager as well, amongst yeah. like 18 year olds who are on this staircase as well. And instead of kind of playing it cool, I was just like, I'm going to embody a squirrel. <laughs> just like Why not? jumped off this staircase with my arms like flying up and then just sort of landed in a little heap in the middle of the modern languages department with all these like far too cool for school kids around me and like were I think you, were you unscathed or? uh yeah I didn't break anything that time but I think I now kind of whenever I run down a hill I'm just like channeling that inner squirrel <laughs> Maybe, would you recommend this as a training technique? Maybe this is what I need to do to get better. Jump off a few few flights of stairs, squirrel squirrel style. Okay, it's a deal. When when you're doing the London Marathon, come and shout along the way, be more squirrel, Helen. Be more squirrel. (laughs) Right, now, just in terms of, um, before we get into kind of like more of your relationship with sort of running and climbing, I do just want to flag um, a different form of movement. Um, which is your anthology One for the Road which is a collection of poems that takes the reader on a kind of literary pub crawl and I was really interested just as a a start off to know what inspired that Um, Well uh, uh, I don't don't know if this is a good combination or not but I do think (laughs) that that running and the pub go quite well together there's always that the nice bit after a fell race um, so a lot of the Derbyshire fell races would be on like Thursday nights and everyone would go to the pub afterwards Um, and and I think um, maybe on a more serious note I'm really interested in storytelling Uh, And I think pubs are great sort of theatres of storytelling. So um, I wanted to bring together um, stories and poems that used used the pub as their setting, um, that that kind of sense of everybody settling down um, and kind of the things that you overhear or the things that you see. I think maybe a bit of that came now that we're talking about it, it might have come from living in Grasmere for a year um, because when I was in Grasmere, um, which is when I was I was doing a lot of my most intense writing uh, and also running because um, why wouldn't you in that, in that sort of environment and the, the, the hub of the village was the pub without doubt. That was just where you went to see people. In fact, very often um, I used to go fell running with a guy called John and we, we often wouldn't sort of officially arrange where we were going to meet to start our run over the hills. We'd sort of go, all right, we'll turn up at Tweedy's at around about such and such a time, or I'd go and look for him and see if I could find him in there. So there's that sense of that kind of meeting point of the, the, the places where different people's paths cross, maybe got reinforced by, by um, spending that time in the Lake District and thinking about rural pubs in particular. That's so lovely and it, it kind of becoming a melting pot of possibility as well like you were saying the kind of I think we've lost that quite a lot haven't we the chance yeah. for like sort of incidental meetings and overhearing of things that happen when you're just connecting with people in quite a kind of unstructured and what might yeah. appear kind of chaotic manner but it, it, it allows for that that's when creativity starts isn't it really yeah absolutely yeah the unplanned and in in the Lake District you might literally have that you you could go out for a run and I'd often run over um, Luffrick 
uh, Tarn towards Ambleside. And it would be quite normal to meet someone you knew running the opposite way. And so I have those unstructured encounters like that as well. Um, and I think I felt like I was trying to, I was very intimidated by trying to write in the footsteps of Wordsworth and, and his mm. particular way of, of mapping landscapes. So I sort of thought, thought of myself as doing a kind of fell runner's version of that. Um, of course, my greatest regret from that time is not having trained for and attempted a Bob Graham round that remains. Oh, <laughs> sort of thing that I wish I'd, I'd um, had a go at while I was in the perfect environment for doing it. But um, Could it still be on the cards one day, do you think? <laughs> uh, could be. I think when my son's a bit older, I, I, I might possibly uh, get into... I don't think I'm really designed for ultra distances, though. I think marathon is my ideal distance. It's like kind of not short distances, not really long distances, but sort of somewhere in between. Okay, um, so, so London. I don't know if my body would, would, would like the training, but we'll see. <laughs> Possibly like something for the No, not at all. I think marathon's a scary thing. So I, I have like, infinite respect for you. So I think London Marathon embodying squirrel is, is definitely, <laughs> is definitely an admirable feat in itself. So what was, um, uh, we just talked about fell racing and things, but what was growing up like for you? Um, it's interesting you talking about school and that particular memory of the, <laughs> the teenage like awkwardness. Um, so I discovered um, I'd always loved walking because my, my dad is a really keen was a really keen fell walker and like, would take me out on walks in Derbyshire. So I was kind of really interested in getting outdoors and stuff like that. Um, I only started running by accident, really. Um, we used to have to do, I don't know if you remember this or if this was a thing everywhere, but that, that the bleep test at school where you have to run between the, is, is that a traumatic memory? I wasn't really a runner when I was at school. I th- well, I definitely wasn't like a bleep test runner. And it was only when I got, did sort of, I got into cross country that I realized that, oh, you don't have to run like these little sprint distances kind of thing. It's just evil, isn't it? There was a sit-up one as well, I remember, that you had to sort of... uh, But I I think I I did weirdly well in the bleep test uh, once. I was the last person left, apart from... um, a boy in my class who was quite a heavy smoker and he did better than me. So I don't know whether I was good or not, but um, uh, yeah, he was really, really good. Um, and I got picked to run the 800 metres at the district sports, um, which which was really exciting for me. And I just thought I'd start training. So I would go to the cricket pitch across from my house and just do laps of the cricket pitch and feel like I was going to pass out. It was so hard and so difficult. Um, That might have been the end of it. Um, But when I turned up for the sports day, um, the PE teacher told me that um, they changed their mind about the team uh, order. They didn't think I was going to do that well, I don't think. So they put someone else as the the scoring athlete and I was the reserve so I could run but it wouldn't count for any points for the score but for some reason this made me really determined so um I just kind of ran my heart out I ran it was the 800 meters I ran as fast as I could and um, I think I came second or something like that or, or third and it was like a light bulb moment of oh maybe I can do this maybe it's something that um, and I think as a teenager, yeah, running really gave my life a lot of structure and purpose, I guess. I I kind of struggled with school. I didn't 
enjoy the social side of it very much. I was a bit of a considered to be a bit of a swat, um, a bit of a weirdo who liked making up stories and doing their work and stuff like that. So, so running was was something else. It was something that I could put a lot of energy into. Um, so that that's kind of when I started and, and didn't look back. Um, it was, of course, um, like, you know, like, like many um, teenagers, you feel the, the pressure to perform or to, be, to do well at things. It was at times, um, especially in that time, it was not, not a healthy thing for me really at all. I got too into running mm-hmm. and I used it as a sort of tool of punishment, I think, as well, and particularly weight loss um, as much as anything else. Um, yeah, and yeah, I mean, this isn't really answering your question because it's it's sort of jumping ahead a bit, I think. But when I was certainly when I was a teenager, and I was never like a really brilliant runner, like at a national level or anything, but I was sort of doing well enough to consider the idea of doing it a bit more seriously, or um, and I got offered a scholarship to a university in America that would be for my running basically and mm. to I would have meant focusing on the running and I was dead set on I was going to do that and um that was my kind of career path um and then I got a foot injury this is the theme of our conversation I think is, is, is feet. <laughs> it's gonna be a lot of <laughs> and it, I, I wasn't a bad what it was a tendon thing but it, it really really dragged on and on and on um and I had a lot of time out it coincided with changes to my body as a teenager going through puberty. Um, I discovered going out, clubbing at the same time and stuff like that. And all of that conspired to make me go from winning races to finishing last, quite literally like that. Um, uh, I, I was used to being at the front and suddenly I was right at the back. My dad it beat me in a few of the local fell races, which she's never, ever let me forget. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it just totally, and I just thought, well, that's not going to happen then, is it? And it was probably one of the best things that could have happened to me because it would have been a mistake for me to pursue that in the way that I thought I might. And I certainly wouldn't be doing what I do now. I wouldn't be a writer. Um probably wouldn't be very healthy um I suspect if if I had gone down that route I mean who knows but I think it was a real the foot injury was a real blessing in disguise it was it was telling me something I think that was a very long-winded answer sorry about that no that's really interesting and the idea of kind of something that you were obviously good at and gave you a kind of release from being somewhat different as a teenager and actually now it's so weird isn't it how like all the things that you describe as making you different from others like now I certainly think like I want to be friends with that Helen <laughs> she sounds great <laughs> um, and as, as adults we kind of we change don't we and we become yeah. okay with ourselves and um, and it sounds like you've kind of found your way back to running in a way that now fits more with your with your personality and who you are comfortable with as a person rather than it being channeled in a kind of in a way that was that was potentially going to be harmful and setting you on a path that was maybe not going to be as fulfilling as what I'm sort of hearing 
I mean, I, I, yeah, yeah. Yes and, yes and no, in that I kind of, it's still a relatively recent thing to be, um, I feel like I'm being massively confessional. <laughs> Don't oh, cool. Because I feel very comfortable talking to you and I'm very, would be, I've been written about this kind of stuff anyway. Um, but I, I, I still have to watch myself. So, so mm. even though I, I've kind of, my relationship with running is just spiked through through my life really um so I had that time of sort of not taking running as quote quote seriously um when I was a teenager but then I've, I've that's changed again as an adult so I've gone through spells of running is obviously something that I have a bit of a natural affinity for or something because when I start training so if I start training with any kind of discipline I can get you know reasonably good again to, to the point of winning races and stuff at localish kind of level um and so it tends to go in spirals uh, sort of cycles yeah. for me I'll, I'll not run for ages I'll not take it seriously at all I'll, I'll get better I'll get a bit of kind of uh competitive spirit or something I don't know what it is that suddenly go oh if I just if I just did this a bit more regularly maybe I could win that race instead of it and, and then I join a club or something or I set myself a goal um, and then before I know it I'm overtraining. I'm putting a lot of pressure on myself um, or in the past and no I mean no no fault of athletics clubs at all they're wonderful and I've had some of the nicest times with clubs but typically I'll join a club and then they also start to put pressure on me to race if I'm doing well and they want me to represent the team and stuff like that. And I get obsessed with, with am I going to let them down? Am I going to not be good enough? And it just kind of, before I know it, I'm back um, sort of training too much, uh, thinking about it too much, um, you know, seeing it as a bit of a, a thing to prove something and potentially as well, um, uh, yeah, like restricting weight or whatever, mm. and then I'll stop and stop running again, and then it goes back. So I, I've had I've been stuck in that pattern for quite a long time, and in fact, I think last time it's, it's quite interesting thinking about 2023 in London because the last time around the London Marathon was probably one of those times for me. I I got it into I'd done it before a few times, but I got it into my head that I wanted to break three hours. Um, and that was my goal. And I met the goal, but meeting it required a lot of obsession and pressure. And when I crossed the line, I just thought, I shouldn't be doing this mm. at the moment. It's not, you know, it's not not really uh, great for the, for the rest of my life. So that's the last time I ran the London Marathon. I'm now going to be doing it. In, so the thing that really has broken the cycle for me is parenthood um because when I was pregnant I still ran but obviously I had to get very comfortable with running extremely slowly and only doing what my body told me I could do and the same thing postpartum mm -hmm. um also because I've ended I ended up with a lot less time in my son's four now so it's got loads easier but I wasn't able to run it has had to become something that I really really only do for my own um clearing of my head or for enjoyment and I, I just don't and I think I've resolved that I'm never going to join a, a club again 
Um, again, nothing against clubs, which are wonderful, but it's just it's me that's the problem. I don't seem to do very well in them. Um, so, yeah, I, I either run on my own or I've got some brilliant um, running partners that I just have fun with. And um, <laughs> So, sorry, yes, again, another long answer, but, yeah, I have got to that point with it now, but it's definitely not been a linear thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's I know kind that of... makes complete sense. And thank, thank you also for being being so honest and forthcoming with that as well because I think it's sometimes it's really difficult to talk about things in the present tense as well yeah people people don't talk in the present tense very much um like it's kind of easier to be reflective and kind of say well this was a problem but to say like actually this is like cycles that I go through am going through and are kind of like a bit nervous about going into that kind of competitive space as well I think those are those are conversations that are really important to have. So thank you for thank you for feeling comfortable enough to have that as well. Because um, so I, I definitely hear that, and it's it's such a blessing and a curse to also be have something that you're really good at, but then be putting pressure on yourself. Um, and it's the same with academics and things. I would imagine <laughs> imagine too. Um, you're kind of a high functioning, yeah. high performing woman. It's like it's very easy to get into those narratives. I think. <laughs> And it can be maybe the same with writing, but I think for me the difference with writing is that that failure is so enmeshed with it, and it's it's part of the process, and it it, it doesn't matter. Um, there's no there's not a sort of universal way to be. Again, I want to say quote unquote, but like good as a writer, it's much more unpredictable and raw and vulnerable and strange and mysterious than that. And I think that's kind of it's nice for me knowing that that's always there. To sort of, I'm always very interested, of course, like in that relationship between writing and running. Whether it's, I feel like I know a lot of writers who run now, increasingly more and more. Um, which is really fascinating. And you start thinking, is it about how you think when you're running? You know, do you get ideas when you run? I, I find that I, I do quite often, but I have to be receptive in the first place, I think. Yeah, it's kind of, it's interesting, isn't it? Because one of my one of my questions was sort of going to be based around, you know, the idea of, the, the, and you already mentioned it with sort of Wordsworth and stuff, the idea of kind of composing poetry emotion is something that is sort of linked to that romantic tradition but I think there is that that sort of fluidity and kind of loosening of yourself that happens when you're moving isn't there in a way and yeah it's almost like you've tricked your conscious mind by giving it something else to be doing and to be thinking about putting one foot in front of another and about your surroundings and that leaves the other parts of, of your mind free to sort of yeah uh, go off on tangents and think about things but I I know that I can go on certain kinds of run that will lead to that state happening and that other times I'm just not receptive to it I'm I'm going out with my headphones or I'm sort of deliberately not allowing myself that 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 kind of uh, opportunity so there are several different kinds of run I think that that (laughs) I go on. I guess also like running is about ultimately being kind of connected to your body and I mean your your writing is 
so much about sort of embodiment and kind of physicality. And like before thinking about a line, um, a line above the sky, I'm, I'm really interested in your most recent collection, The Illustrated Woman, because for me, that sort of really mm-hmm. deep dives into this idea of what it is to be in a female body. And, and it's really interesting also what you were saying about kind of with, with writing and it not being this idea of perfection, because your writing does deal with that messiness is <laughs> okay. about that messiness and and you sort of celebrate the female body as something that is both yeah a cause for celebration but also for trauma too and mm-hmm. I, and I'd be interested to hear you just kind of like talk about that sort of kind of visceral portrait that you show in in those poems it's really, it's really interesting because hearing you describe it like that, I've actually I've actually started thinking about that book in a way I haven't thought of it before, which is, because as you were describing it, I was thinking about the way I write, and I was like, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, yeah, I am kind of writing about the messiness and kind of, but my poems are often quite orderly yeah. and quite lyric, and they're, they're, you know, I really admire work that's more experimental with the way words take up space on the page, but every time I try and do it, it's like it doesn't quite feel right to me and I'm always making the poem take up less space on the page or trying to order it or make it rhyme or something. So that's kind of interesting because it goes against the the, the sort of the, the subject in a way. Um, but, I mean, the book's called The Illustrated Woman, not because all of the poems are about tattooing, um, mm-hmm. that's, but because it seems like a really interesting metaphor um, to, to me for, for lots of things and um, lots of powerful things around the difference between what we might try and project um, into the world and what the world chooses to project upon us the way we are read by others is not um, and I've even seen it with the book itself you know it's, it's interesting I had a, was reading a review um where it was, it was a lovely review, a kind review, a positive one, but the the reviewer was sort of talking about the the claustrophobia of the poems. In this, it's so it's too, I think they were saying, oh, it's really claustrophobic having all this intense contemplation of the poet's body. <laughs> um, and I was like, well, how do you know it's the poet's body? It's not meant. It's the narrator, isn't it? But but at the same time, <laughs> I was like, well, that's interesting because maybe that's how it feels to live in a in a female body at this particular point in history and uh, where we've got a lot of freedoms, but also a lot of intangible pressures and, and constraints. So the idea of claustrophobia really interested me. And thinking about it and thinking about the way you've described it there, I think one of the reasons I'm so fascinated by tattooing and particularly tattooed female bodies and tattooed as a metaphor is... Um, it's sort of going against, very obviously, going against this idea of perfection or the perfected body. Because something that, that people say to you time and again, and I think this is probably more acutely directed at tattooed women than men, is sort of like, oh, but, you know, oh, you, you might regret you spoiling yourself. Or, you know, you have the idea that you have this lovely blank canvas that you've ruined by doodling all over, as if there is some inherently good quality to this to the, the body as it was born and that and that we we would spoil it by by drawing on it and I think I like the 
I like the messiness of um, of a kind of amalgamation of tattoos and what what that might mean to go on a, a, a journey like that to decide you can write or overwrite something I think it's actually again it's all about the same things it's about the idea of being good or of being you know I've heard people there's a poem in the book that talks about like a friend of mine being like oh but why would you you know why would you spoil the the purity of the form the pure and and I suppose I was going well what what, what is this purity are, are we what what would that mean are, are we all messy and mucky and complicated and sort of um you know in all all those kind of ways so yeah I, I often feel a bit weird if I'm doing a reading and it's something I've had people come up to me afterwards and be like oh I, I haven't got any tattoos as if that's a bad thing <laughs> and I was sort of saying oh, no I'm not an evangelist but <laughs> I'm not a kind of ink evangelist or anything like that I'm just really interested in the negative reactions that it does provoke and how different that is to like, my own experience of, of why I'm obsessed with with that kind of world and, and other people that, that I know um so, so yeah it's more that kind of idea of control and how you're seen isn't it yeah that's interesting as well kind of thinking in the context of what we've been talking about and and discussing with running and um and writing and you were saying about kind of choosing different routes might lead to different states of minds and it sort of puts me in mind when when you're talking there about this idea of kind of also creating your own map in a way of your body by literally in ink possibly if you take kind of the the tattoos as a, as a literal thing mm-hmm. and do you think there's an element of that as well sort of creating almost like a new kind of cartography of, of the body yeah absolutely it's like your, your body is a kind of choose your own adventure kind of thing where you're deciding what what what's going to happen and how those things will relate to each other yeah I think I, I find it very weirdly empowering and that's not to say that it is an inherently empowering thing to do or that there's any it's just that I think it can take on that personal meaning for for some people maybe if they've also got fed up of uh, or they've had experiences like many people have um of having other people directly project things onto their bodies that they didn't want you know or to to really kind of um yeah, have strong opinions or sort of, uh, yeah, see them in a way that they don't want to be seen. Um, it's a kind of way of reclaiming something, I think. Yeah, um, kind of almost reclaiming the gaze as well, in a way, mm. I guess, kind of how you how you want other people to, to read you, almost literally, I guess. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, and by strange coincidence, um, most of uh, the running that I do at the moment is with uh, a friend who is an incredibly, incredibly talented and successful tattoo artist. <laughs> so there's an overlap in the kind of running um, tattooing uh, thing. Um, although, like I was saying uh, to you a bit earlier, um, I usually use tattoos as a bit of an excuse to have a week off training or something. <laughs> and she's completely shattered that for me by going, ah, oh, no, come on, you can come for a run, it's fine. <laughs> and sort of encouraging me to, to, to carry on. Um, so she doesn't let me off the hook with that. Um, Maybe you yeah. could do like tattoos on the run and then literally have a line above the sky, like the highest, yeah. the highest tattoo ever recorded. <laughs> 
Do you know what? One, one, of, my, one of my friends in Sheffield had a line, uh, a quote from a, a line above the sky as a tattoo quite recently and it was it was one of the most amazing beautiful and just yeah humbling nice things I don't really know how to describe it but it was just really special um, to me the idea of those words being on traveling with someone um, in the world in quite a physical way it's really nice yeah that's um, amazing because I think that you do you know the books that or the, the lines in books that really stick with you I do really feel like books travel in your soul the ones that are really really special right. and they kind of become they become part of you and in in a really kind of quite physical way I think so so having that as a as a tattoo is is kind of it's a manifestation of that isn't it that sort of you 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 and the you and the book you and the lines have kind of become one I know that there's always kind of loads of mixed feelings about the act of memorizing poetry and maybe how that's associated with the time in schools when it was like learning by rote or whatever but I do think that there's something special about poetry in particular in that it's so portable that you can you can memorize it especially if it rhymes it makes it easier to memorize you've got the rhythm and the rhyme helping you in your head and yeah once you've remembered it you carry it with you forever um my grand great grandmother great grandmother in her 90s could still recite higher poems and, and, and i i've got poems that i carry around with me in that way like you're saying it, it does become part of you and i think poetry is kind of unique among the the art forms in being that easy to internalise and to, you know, it wants to be... Some Patterson always says that a poem is a little machine for remembering itself. And I, I sort of don't agree with the machine analogy, but I know what he means. I kind of I feel like it's more like a... Maybe it's more like an organic thing that remembers itself. But, um, yeah, it, it wants to be... It wants to be shared, I think carried and um yeah so maybe it makes poetry and running natural companions like you say yeah it wants to be read it wants to be carried with you I think um my grandmother when she had Alzheimer's she could still remember uh the owl and the pussycat and so every time I went to see her we'd recite the owl and the pussycat and I was um there were some kids at school that did it for a poetry competition recently and I was in I was in floods of tears because I just meant so much to me hearing those words um because they were ones that I've memorized and and they helped my grandmother's memory come back not of everything but of that specific thing um it's amazing it's like a it's like a charm isn't it um yes and I guess that kind and of like music, the way you can carry music yeah. with you. I think there's something similar in the way we, like you say, remember poems. And that I know that that's often something that people with Alzheimer's have, that they kept songs. So it's interesting that poems and songs are the, some of us like they're, they're, they're felt or carried in a different way. Um, yeah definitely and I guess it kind of taps at what you were saying with kind of movement and and poetry and things I mean it does tap into kind of that our ancestral sort of roots of being storytellers and moving around and connecting with each other through through the the paths that we tread that lead us to people that we can then share those share those stories with in a way yeah absolutely I think that's that's kind of why we go to things like poems and songs at times of celebration and grief it's because there's something quite 
deep-rooted about it that maybe we can't even always put our fingers on, but but it's, it's sort of there. It brings us together. It's a thing. And speaking of things that kind of feel like they need to be told, um, I mean, you've, you've addressed sort of like climbing and, and, and mountains and, and women doing those things in, in previous works, but A Line Above the Sky feels like something that you needed to write like something that felt quite essential for you to be writing and I wonder what that driving force was that made that story feel like it needed to be told at this point it's so interesting you you must be my dream reader because um, (laughs) the way you just described it is uncannily similar to how I remember finishing the draft of it and I came back into the house because I write in a, a, a little office shed at the bottom of the garden. When I came back in, I said to my partner, I've got no idea if it's any good or not, but I needed to write it and it needed to come out like this. And it's the book that I've had sort of there in, uh, all, all, that, all that time. So, yeah, it did feel like that. And I think it was – I've always been really interested in the life of – and. Uh, man, the mountaineer Alison Hargreaves written about her before I think because I felt felt a strange kind of affinity with her and maybe to do with the landscape we both come from but but just also in this sense of she would talk about always feeling like she was in the wrong place and when she was out climbing she wanted to be at home with her children and when she was at home with her children she wanted to be out climbing and that's exactly how I feel about you know so many things that that sense of um maybe it's almost greedy in a way that's like you, you want to be able to do all the things um, uh, or, or just that you're not quite quite right all of the time um and yeah I really I've really got um emotional about the way she was treated differently as a mother um compared to all the, the fathers who climb who may have that very well from from people that I know and, and just from from you know imagine it of course they they have their own struggles with with climbing as parents and and uh, you know anyone with any kind of responsibility to anyone else has that that kind of moral dilemma for themselves the differences in how it's portrayed in the media so with 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 male climbers we would often learn that they were a father as a kind of afterthought uh, or you know it's only relatively recently that I realized that George Mallory had three children when he died that was never the headline uh, when people talk about George Mallory and um, but with Alison Hargreaves when she died doing the thing that she loved um, and, and climbing it was all the papers focused on initially and you know sometimes even when she was doing well it's all plucky mum Alison it's part of the we 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 celebrate it as an extreme achievement when things are going well but then as soon as they don't go well you're judged much more harshly I think um I remember when I was really um my son was really small. Um, I was reading about Jasmine Paris mm-hmm. doing the, I think it was the Dragon's Back, wasn't it? And, uh, and the, spine, um, the spine race. Breastfeeding. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And expressing on the way around. And I, was, I, was, I had quite a complicated reaction to it because I was full of awe and I was inspired by what she was doing. 
And at the same time, I was like, oh, well, I'm such a failure because I, I was in that kind of time with a young child mm-hmm. and I wasn't doing anything. And then also thinking, but what about Alison? You know, this is being celebrated as a hero, but maybe if, if she'd had an accident in the race, would they be talking about it? I, I kind of feel like we're, we're quite... We're quite hypocritical as a society in the way we we judge women in the public eye in general and in sport, um, in in anything physical, definitely. Yeah, and it's that that double bind, as you say. You're kind of damned if you do and damned if or or celebrated if you can do all the things, basically. Yeah. And and actually then well, you don't have to do all the things. You are wonderful for doing any one of those things or none of them at all. <laughs> but um, but yeah, in the case of, of Jasmine as well, like would that have made such big news if she'd simply, you know, won the entire race, which is what she did. You know, she she beat everyone. She also did it did it breastfeeding and expressing milk. That is incredible as well. But you know, would we have said, oh, negligent mother for going and doing a race and leaving her baby at home with like some, um, you know, some some bottle feed or whatever? Like, uh, what would have that narrative been, as you say? Um, and we will will judge. Yeah, that was what really that really struck me as well because that's something I feel quite strongly about is our um, our narratives around things like breastfeeding. So, for example, Alison Hargreaves, when her kids were little, the kind of climbing she could do was very, very governed by feeds and the time between feeds and stuff like that. Um, and there, we do have an obsession with with the naturalness of, of breastfeeding as a kind of moral good in, in society, I found anyway, in a lot of the discourse. Um, and, and and that's not necessarily always best for the for the for the mother's mental health. Um, so, for instance, I did a combination of bottle feeding and breastfeeding with my son, and I didn't breastfeeding for very long actually and a lot of that was to do with needing very strongly needing physical independence from to be able to go off and do like a long day's work without having to do all that extra admin which in itself yes actually probably is heroic to to manage that mental load of expressing and all that stuff I just I just couldn't really at a certain point couldn't do that so um but there's definitely, again, there's a value judgment. There's, as you, well, you, you summed it up much better than I've just waffled my way through the same kind of idea. But yeah, it's very interesting the choices that are made. I, I kept imagining that she must have got that Jasmine Paris probably at some point got fed up with people asking her that in interviews about the. I was like, come on, I won the race. I was like, yes, it is remarkable that I did it like that. And it's really interesting. And it's good that we're talking about that. And it's a great role model for. But also, yeah, I mean, that doesn't have to be that. It doesn't need to be that for it to be a great story that she, she'd done so well. Um, and it's a great big achievement for any human, full stop, regardless of their gender or. Uh, parent status yeah and yeah. actually what you're what you're saying there's kind of putting me in mind of this idea of like also do we damn her for like feeling conflicted about it as well I've no idea what's going through the head of Jasmine Paris but the fact yeah. that kind of what you're talking about is also linked to kind of identity and having ownership of yourself and like also I imagine I don't have children but sort of when when you become a mother and breastfeeding and stuff and perhaps feeling that kind of claustrophobia of just being a 
a feed <laughs> machine kind of thing. Like, where is your identity amongst that? And like, for someone like Jasmine, or for like you trying to balance things, it's like, well, you are many things, you are a mother, you are a a feeder you are but you're also an athlete and and a writer and all those things and you don't have to feel okay about having and and having to be one one thing like (laughs) you don't need to be put in that package that can be put in the media like (laughs) I think we just as a society we, we we need to be less sort of implicitly morally judgmental about people's individual choices I mean I'm advocating a sort of extreme individualism here or like I feel like I'm in danger of sounding like Thatcher with (laughs) being no societies I don't mean that at all I just yeah I think I mean that we need to be better at recognizing paradox and conflict within the, the the self and within various situations um, and I guess that's why I wanted to write a line above the sky. Um, I, for me, an interesting topic um, to explore as a writer is where I feel a sense of conflict in myself, probably, or lack of resolution. Um, so, for instance, in, the, in that book, in the line above the sky, it was stuff like, well, how is it that I can defend until the end of time Alison Hargreaves' rights to do the climb she did as a mother? And yet, since my son's been born, I haven't wanted to, to climb. I've been really risk-averse. And I guess that's why I like writing, because writing, good writing, I think, doesn't seek to simplify. It sort of seeks to complicate, if anything. But not to confuse, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of exploring complicated things in an honest or clear-sighted sort of way. Yeah, and provoking um, questions, which is what, you know, we we don't read necessarily to find answers. We can read to sort of like identify with something like what, I, what I'm hearing is kind of that actually sort of writing about Alison or, or other climbers and, and women historically sort of allows you to then identify kind of questions that you have in yourself and sort of work through them not as a not as therapy but more as a kind of like this isn't this is interesting this is maybe a vehicle for what I'm feeling so the kind of the historical kind of becomes yeah. personal in a way definitely yeah yeah and it's all linked and then you kind of hopefully enter into a dialogue with readers and other people as well who might have had those experiences you know which is why I mean, talking to you today um, with the podcast, I've, I've had loads of realizations about different things about my work and my running and, and all sorts that I wouldn't have had on my own. You know, it's just that, that's the whole beauty of it. I genuinely have. <laughs> this has been so, uh, so lovely. Cause there's so many things that you've said that have made me go, oh, actually, yes, this is what it's about or it's why that's important. And sometimes you're just doing it without necessarily knowing or reflecting on it too much. Um, So, yeah, it's all a conversation, um, ideally, which is why podcasts are so great, because podcasts are all about multiple conversations. It's such a nice medium and format, I think. They're an excuse to have a good natter with interesting people, I think, really. Because otherwise, it's it's an excuse to to have these kinds of conversations, I think. And also, in in your writing, like, the landscape itself is is obviously... A feature and I guess you've kind of touched on this with what you were saying about that it was really crucial for you kind of postpartum to then be also getting outside and I was sort of wondering kind of 
first of all, what the mountains kind of mean to you. And then throughout your writing, there is this kind of like, it's very firmly rooted in the landscape. And kind of, is there a real importance to you as as a poet and as a writer to kind of be connecting to the landscape through your writing? Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think of a way of, of putting this that doesn't sound incredibly pious or something, because <laughs> I, I am as hypocritical about environmental issues as I am about everything else, and, and definitely not in any way perfect. Um, but I think, I think really that the landscape or the the setting or the place has to be part of the conversation, and it has to be informing. Um, humans as, as well as vice versa because um, you know we, we need to it, it, it's it's a political act in a way to say that we are interdependent with our environments and vice versa it's something that we've we've kind of been uh, again on a larger scale putting on hold or denying for quite, <laughs> quite a long time um, and now of course it, it comes back into focus when um, when the earth starts making its own feelings known about how we've kind of uh, how we've been ignoring it so yeah I'm always really interested in that the most fun I've ever had with setting and with place was when I was writing my novel um, which is set in and around field I decided to get some locations that were in the book to comment on the characters and tell their side of things Mm. which in itself is a is a weird thing to do because it it's sort of it's almost like anti-environment in a way because it's me anthropomorphizing all these places by pretending they've got a human voice. But it was also a kind of playful way of, of sort of saying that humans weren't the only ones who got to tell the story and that the, the place was really important as well. Um, what do you think The Rock would say to, to people kind of scrabbling around over its surface? Oh, I think different... In, I did something for radio with the Pinnacle Club, the... Uh, women's climbing club for one of their anniversaries where I was imagining the the personalities of all the different kinds of rock and um, gritstone was my favorite because I decided that gritstone would just be thoroughly fed up of like just grumpy basically um the wonderful writer and climber Anna Fleming um mm. in her book Time on Rock talks about gritstone as having a sort of Heathcliff type personality where it seems very appealing and, and, and mysterious like oh come over here and then you get like oh blimey I'm not sure about this <laughs> so I kind of imagine it being a bit scornful of all the climbers and um, scampering all over it somehow yeah you wouldn't take gritstone home to meet your mother <laughs> definitely not definitely not uh, maybe some nice kind of limestone or yeah some some lovely uh, yeah some lovely limestone would be a better choice for oh, that's like a, that. I really like that idea actually of kind of doing a sort of uh some speed dating poems of, of with rocks <laughs> maybe we should write them it's gone very dark here by the way sorry about that I've just realized that my screen is in total darkness oh that's it that's okay um, it sort of it gives it a miss it gives it a Heathcliffian kind of if it was a if it was a um a filter on instagram it would be gritstone with, Grit with an filter. i think this needs to be introduced clearly <laughs> how did you actually feel about um kind of a lineup of the sky being positioned within the sort of mountain literature genre obviously you won a prize which is fantastic but mm-hmm. 
But how did you feel about that that label and kind of the, the also the lineage that it went in, that that prize has kind of historically been won by a lot of men? Yes, and including this year, of course, because we had a joint... Um, we had a joint winners sort of thing where there was my book and there was also a book by um great book by by Brian Hall, which is mm. more in that kind of sort of classic mountaineering genre. I was just really shocked. I didn't expect it to win. Um partly because I grew up reading a lot of the classics of mountaineering literature and it was kind of men's stories of of setback and triumph in the mountains so yeah I kind of have a bit of imposter syndrome about my book being in that world I think it's a really interesting sign of how people are thinking about what mountain stories can be that it it was included in the shortlist and that um, yeah it was it was considered worthy of of winning the prize I was really honoured and I think it's yeah it's it's a, a positive sort of step I think the more different different perspectives on being in mountains we have, the better. And obviously, there's still a massive way to go in in diversifying the stories that we hear about in who climbs, who who goes outdoors. I watched a really great film um, after Kendall. Um, <laughs> Welcome to what is now part two with Helen Moore. Um, The Wi-Fi got a bit glitchy and then Helen needed to dash to collect her lovely son from nursery. Um, But we still had a bit to talk about. So here we are again um, in the same episode for you, but it's it's day two for us. Um, And when we last left each other, we were discussing identity and making space for others um, in outdoor sports. And Helen was just just describing um, a film called Run to the Source, which actually I then had a chance to watch last night so thanks for that recommendation Helen oh, <laughs> like it. oh my goodness I loved it so this film for listeners is um it's a, it's a short film uh with Patagonia that follows a guy called Martin Johnson and he's attempting to break 40 hours on the 184 mile Thames Pass whilst exploring the connection between Black British history and the River Thames and I mean that last sequence of it I was bawling my eyes out I think it's just so so affecting and it really does it also explores so much of like what we were reflecting on regarding sort of embodiment and then how we're written um and read by society and then therefore how we are able or not able to represent ourselves and how that affects our perception of self and then linking that to movement and the history of the river um and yeah I definitely thank you so much for that recommendation um And just leading into this conversation um, now, I was kind of wondering, do you think there's a perception of what a climber or runner should be? Um, Well, I think traditionally, it's not so much that there's a perception of what they should be. It's more that there's been a kind of assumption about what they are. Mm. Um, And I mean, 
on the whole, it's probably been a white man a lot of the time, in, especially in, in mountaineering, I think. And also then there's this like different kinds of running. So for instance, um, yeah, road running, we might expect like lots of people do road running, but um, I think they touch on this in the film, you, you know, because they're... they're because he forms a, a black trail runners group yeah. and he has people going, oh, why do you need one of, the, you know, what, that's a bit exclusive, why do you need one of those? And I was just thinking about, um, yeah, that, that it's not so much that, that we think that a runner or a climber or whatever should be a kind of person, it's just that we're so used to associating it with the people we see doing it the most um, uh, that it kind of becomes the norm um, and other people sort of become the exception in that context. And I think, say, with rock climbing, we've seen that change quite a lot in terms of gender. Mm. Um, so at one point I would notice that if I went climbing indoors, there'd be quite an even sort of gender split. Um, but as soon as you get to traditional gritstone climbing, it, it changes quite markedly and you wouldn't see nearly as many women and particularly pairs of women climbing together. So... There, there are sort of subcategories within these sports as well, I think, that, that are kind of connected maybe with certain demographics, at least implicitly when, when we think about them. So, yeah, it's that, um, it's that cliche, isn't it, of being the change that you want to see um, by kind of um, starting things and doing things that you might not have felt you had a, um, a role model for. Yeah. But again, that takes confidence. So, so it's, it's quite it's quite difficult being a, um, a you know like like in that film being a trailblazer of some kind. It's um, it's a it's a daunting thing maybe to take on. And um, so yeah, it's just just good to have as many other people supporting you as possible. I guess. Yeah, um, and, and also, talking about that. I mean, as you say, it is really complicated as well because also there's that kind of then. The pressure to be the sort of voice of and representation of a group at times when you might be at the point where you're like I just <laughs> don't, don't want to have to deal with this anymore like and um, that has its complications too really. We talked a bit yesterday about um, uh, sort of running pregnant and stuff yeah. like that and, and all those kind of things. Um, and something where I've encountered a lot of people's opinions that I'm sure I'm more sensitive to because I'm lucky enough not to get absolutely tons of this in everyday life. But um, when I've been running with my son in a buggy um, since he was little, I've done a lot of that and... When he was small, you'd get so many unasked for opinions, um, like including, you know, silly stuff like I'd, I'd feel really proud that I'd managed to get him out for a run and we'd have a nice time together in the woods. And then somebody would comment and go, oh, my goodness, isn't he getting jolted around too much with with that movement? That can't be good for him, blah, 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 blah. And then it turns from something really enjoyable into a source of anxiety because people are telling you what, what they think about oh like is he warm enough is it, I've had that on mountains you know is he, is he warm enough in that carrier or all that kind of stuff and um, luckily now that he's older that's stopped because um, he's so clearly his own being and uh, he's, now I just have to worry about um, going around the park run with him, um, uh, with him singing or shouting <laughs> things out at other runners, and just generally making a vocal um, nuisance slash 
delight of himself. Um, but even so, you know, that the, it's made me think differently about about my own sense of entitlement to space, um, for instance, because, and it's daft that it should take something like this to make you realise it, but when I started running with a buggy um, in the park run, um, I started thinking about people people using wheelchairs and people with mobility needs in public spaces and how difficult that might be. And also the way that people can, some people are really supportive and other people can react quite negatively to you Mm. Um, taking up space in that way I particularly found in the park run that if you're running with a buggy and going relatively fast that can cause some people to get really annoyed because they sort of they sort of think it's okay for you to run with a buggy but you have to let everyone else go past you and and you know it was actually I found it safer for me to be to start near the near the front so that people can see me and they can much more nimbly go around that and me rather than me going around them but you get a lot of kind of i mean there's a whole other conversation about park runs and the, the, the organizers of ours always say before it, it's a run not a race but there's a, there's a bit of a i think people get pretty carried away um so yeah it made me think about you know, taking up space in public and um, the the tricky aspects of that, I guess. Um, That's really interesting. And yeah, that again, uh, we're really inclusive and you can be included as long as you're bad, <laughs> as long as you stay at the back, out the way and <laughs> that kind of seen but not heard kind of thing. And when I was reading your book, I was really, I was both tickled and infuriated by your accounts of Victorian climbers um, in their crinolines, which I know that you've done as well to yeah. kind of make a point. And there's that idea again of this kind of taking up space and the sort of gaze and thinking about how you are viewed by people and therefore that affecting your behaviour and all of that kind of getting it just must have been so much pressure and you're actually just wanting to go out on a climb and actually having to yeah, yeah, about yeah. hitching up your skirts or whatever <laughs> there's it's such a great um rabbit hole to go down researching um some of the pioneering female climbers because there are all these stories that you don't know if they're apocryphal or, or not um, about women wearing trousers under their skirts and they're sort of leaving the skirt at the bottom of the mountain scrambling up in trousers coming back down and then forgetting to retrieve the skirt and getting all the way back to the city or the town and realizing oh no I've got to go all the way back again to, to get my my skirt but yeah again it's it's kind of a uh, dress and and clothing um and the politics of that are very interesting in themselves um and as well as it just being um you know funny and um amusing to sort of see what people would literally take with them and climb in on a when i did my crinolines it was more of a walk than a climb Mm -hmm. um but i did rebelliously sort of go out one one day up of the mountain when we were supposed to be um because it was a press trip it was a sort of media trip we were meant to be going up in a cable car and I just got really frustrated about not being able to explore the mountain so I thought um what would a Victorian female pioneering climber have done so she'd just go she'd just say I'll, I'll meet you at the top <laughs> so I had some nice kind of times trying to embody that 
that spirit I guess and what does being uh, that puts me in mind of like the idea of a, a dangerous woman what does a dangerous woman mean to you oh I love that idea and um, yeah I think um I think there is something that goes on on a very subtle level socially about wanting to uh yeah what, what, being very quick to sort of think of women as inherently dangerous mm-hmm. um which is ironic because <laughs> it's usually women who are in danger um in 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 or often is in, in society but yeah there's something about the uh Traditionally, I think there's there's this lingering subliminal thing of um, you know women being outside of domestic spaces and alone, um, especially sometimes it seems inherently challenging to a sort of received order of things. Um, and again, there's been really good writing on this. Um, and, and all the different kind of considerations around who goes where in the outdoors. Um, so. And I know that that um, uh, some people have written quite a bit about the idea of being afraid as a woman outdoors, but also of feeling more safe in a remote mountainous region or rural place than they would alone walking down the street in a city um, or, or running. I mean, yeah, I, I, I wonder how many different people experience kind of heckling in cities when I definitely have had had all kinds of heckling when just um, being out running down the street. Um, My favourite one though, my favourite example of poetic justice or karma accelerated was um, that once in my hometown I was um, I was out for a jog just just along the the pavement and uh, a van passed me and they, the van beeped and they rolled down the window and they shouted uh, something unpleasant at me. And within 100 metres, I saw them get flashed by a speed camera. <laughs> 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 I thought it was brilliant because I was like, there you go, that's, that's, that's just karma accelerated, isn't it? That's, that's your payback for deciding to shout uh, randomly out of your window at me while I'm running. Oh, I love that so much. And it is, again, about like having having space. And I've had it before. There was a guy I was running like in the summer in, in you know, a, a, a sports bra kind of top mm-hmm. and he sort of yelled at me oh cover up love and I was just like you're not wearing a shirt on a bike yeah. like, like what is your problem <laughs> sorry but like I can see your nipples you can't see mine so like what? <laughs> it's bizarre again it's about yeah it's about your your right to be in a certain place in a certain way your right to, yeah. to kind of I, I think I've noticed that heckling with running for me anyway has got slightly better the more people have taken up jogging and running and, and those kind of sports. Because I think when I was a teenager, it was relatively unusual to see people out running compared to, to what it is now. Um, that, that's my perception. It might not be sort of backed up by data, but I definitely feel like you see more people of all ages and backgrounds out for a, for a jog at all times of day now than you know a few decades ago yeah um, a jogger is now a common sight and we were 
So we were talking yesterday about um, Alison Hargraves, who a line above the sky, you kind of write through through her and she is sort of an inspiration for you as well. And we were saying that, you know, kind of how you're, you're identifying with her was kind of one of the urges to sort of write the book. And she was she obviously died on K2, having gone against that convention of women having to give up their sort of professional outdoors adventuring career in order to have a child. And it seems to me reading it that you're kind of exploring there a lot of maybe your own questions surrounding kind of risk and daring to have dreams and goals and daring to challenge ourselves. And I was just kind of wondering what your relationship with sort of competition and ambition is and whether that's changed becoming a mother. Yeah, I think I've definitely stopped it's funny I still get it I still get a flash of competitiveness um, <laughs> I get it when I'm running with my buggy um sometimes in in the in local races I'll suddenly um I'll suddenly get passed by a dad usually with their kid in a buggy and I'll suddenly get the urge to try and keep up as if I've got something to prove to it. I don't know why uh, I mean it's probably just human instinct to be a little bit sort of competitive like that but um yeah, I think nowadays, like I, I really enjoy the kind of social aspects of running. I love the atmosphere of races where you go and you just see lots of people having a really good time, all running for totally different reasons, um, you know, private or public, um, different causes, and just that sense of everyone being able to take part. Um, I remember feeling that very strongly at the Sheffield Half Marathon earlier this year. Um, and just this, yeah, this this sense of everyone having a laugh together. And I think the supporters um, can be a big part of that as well. So I definitely kind of, when I run with other people, it, it uh, I you know make a pact to do a race together and sort of finish the race together. That's really nice because you're sort of not just thinking about your own. And with the ultra distances that I've been doing with my friend, um, we've that's kind of been nice for reducing that sense of competition as well because we haven't been doing ultra races. We've just been doing our own distances. Like we first set a target to run longer than a marathon. We wanted to do like thirty miles plus. Um, and we didn't enter a race. We just found a day, um, a weekend, went somewhere beautiful, plotted a route and and went to see if we could make it round in one piece. And uh, the nice thing about that was that it was very much we're only as strong as the the weakest member of the team kind of thing. Or we're going to do it together. We're going to look after each other a little bit. And, and we did. Um, in fact, I think we got to 31 miles and I was starting to feel injured or like an injury was was developing itself and um, my friend had, had had struggled earlier in the run but had then pushed through this pain barrier and emerged out <laughs> of the other side and she was she was wanting to carry on to do 36 or 37 miles and that that was part of her kind of ambition but she stopped when I stopped because we were doing it together and I just thought that's that's really nice that's definitely not what I would have been like in my teens and um 20s I think it would have been sort of well nothing's gonna hold me back I'm just gonna I'm just gonna push myself to the limit sort of no matter what I think 
mountaineering wisdom comes into that as, as well. You know, the more you read about um, people's mountaineering decisions, you sort of think about, um, you know, the benefits or the the idea of success being judged by getting to the top versus success being judged by coming back alive and being able to continue climbing for a long time, um, uh, you know, into, into your life. There are, there are different sort of measures of success, I think. And really, we're only ever in competition with ourselves, aren't we? That's part of the, part of the thing. <laughs> we are. I said in an, another conversation on the podcast, the thing is like, nobody else really cares. <laughs> they really don't. <laughs> and it's just us telling ourselves that, that, that people do. <laughs> Um, that feeds into that narrative and it's quite interesting because in in the book as well there are you you explore quite a lot that idea of failure as well and particularly kind of failure kind of postpartum and the expectations of being a mother and kind of am I doing the sort of pressure of getting it right and am I doing it right and do you think how do you think that women can kind of rewrite that failure narrative do you think it is in that sort of then on the other flip side of the coin, kind of having a trust, trust in our bodies, trust in other women as well to kind of, to figure that out. Yeah, definitely. I think it's just, just a really nice way of, of getting over some of that is to, is to feel, if you're lucky enough to feel that you're surrounded by people who love you, whether you objectively succeed or fail, um, that it's not to do with that for them. Um, Birth was a, was a real um, challenge for me in terms of narratives of success and failure because I felt like, um, and I'm not saying this pressure came from anyone else other than myself, but I felt from my reading and from um, doing classes and stuff before the birth that there was a sort of pressure to try and have a quote-unquote natural birth and and resisting pain relief and stuff like that and um and and that kind of thing like almost I think I almost got it into my head that it would be some kind of proof of endurance to be able to do that and the reality is that you just don't it's it's pure luck of the draw and you don't really have that much control over what happens no point making a plan because it's so likely to go out of the window a bit like in a very very long distance (laughs) run or race I think you can hope you can aspire but you can't really you can prepare but you can't plan and you can't assume anything so um yeah I've got all these quite vivid memories of spending bits of my son's birth apologizing to the midwives um, because I thought I was letting them down or failing them. <laughs> and and actually, a lot of the medical discourse implicitly um, feeds into that. And again, I mean, blimey, uh, not criticising anybody in the medical profession. They, 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 they've got enough to, to be thinking about without these tiny, r- ridiculously sensitive nuances of language. But... You, know, you get told things like, oh, you know, if you can't push the baby out in the next such and such a time, we'll have to get the doctor in and we'll have to involve, mm. you know, instrumental things. So you, you feel this sense of, oh, wow, I'm not doing it right. I'm kind of, and again, with a newborn child, I think there's a lot of, especially with Google at our fingertips, it's, it's a huge benefit in terms of having loads of information at your disposal, but with with limitless information and opinions comes limitless anxiety because that means there are so many ways that you could be doing it wrong so-called um 
and I think it's only now that that um, my son's quite a bit older, and it, I, I realised that it wouldn't have mattered really. There was no such thing as doing it doing it wrong really. All he needed was for me to love him and listen to him and care for him. And there's a million ways that you can do that rather than obsessing about um, the, the correct or the best way to do something. It really doesn't matter at the end of the day. Um, it, there, there are very there are fewer ways to go wrong than you think. So I, I hope I've sort of started applying that to writing, to, um, to sport and, and stuff like that, to, to life more generally. This taking the pressure off a little bit um, it's the Mary Oliver poem, the line in that Mary Oliver poem that, that um, uh, often gets quoted and passed around. You know, you do not have to be good. <laughs> it's, uh, it's kind of, yeah. I love Being that. good is not all it's cracked up to be. <laughs> I love that line. I think that's another one you were saying about a friend, uh, if you don't mind me sharing, like getting a line from your book tattooed um, on them and that being, you know, a really significant thing for you. And I think yeah. that Mary Oliver line is one that needs to be branded on people as yeah, well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be a great tattoo, actually. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you, you can come to me for stupid ideas for your poems and tattoos. <laughs> We can, get, we can get a matching tattoo oh, that'd be <laughs> <ace>. <laughs> I've just got a couple of final questions and um, one is so um it sort of links to that in terms of because we've spoken a lot about kind of climbing through your book but I you talk in the book about kind of losing your geography kind of through birth yes. and, and I, I haven't been pregnant so I don't I can only imagine what it feels like kind of your body going through all these changes and I was sort of wondering what you feel with your body's relationship to the rock when you're climbing and whether that's kind of a way of kind of bringing yourself back to yourself as well having gone through that sort of disassociation (laughs) with yourself whether that kind of interaction with the rock face and moving your body over it what does that what does that give you personally I mean one of the reasons that I enjoy rock climbing or have enjoyed rock climbing in a way that maybe even running doesn't do for me is that climbing is so much better than running for making you live in the moment Mm. there's there's so much less potential for your mind to wander and for you to start thinking and fussing about other things because and I mean as as we were talking about earlier sometimes that's a strength the fact that you might because you can think about great ideas and um uh, art and maybe even compose things in your head but I would only do that you know, a few times out of 10, the rest of the time, I might be thinking about something really stupid or worrying about something even worse or, or, or just not doing anything very productive. But when you're climbing, you've got this lovely imperative of, of having to think about not falling mm. or being safe. And that really focuses your attention and, and stops your mind from wandering. Um, and also just that physicality of interacting with another element. Um, I imagine people that swim might get this with the, the feel of the water, but um, you're kind of reading the rock and you're, you're judging your next move. And so that has a really nice focusing effect and it, it makes it much more difficult to let, the other stuff in so it's a a better form of escapism sometimes for me although of course when things are going well if you're in a really beautiful place the euphoria that I can get through running um Mm. somewhere lovely 
and just absorbing what's around me and observing it is also like that. It's just that if I go for a run around the streets of Sheffield, I probably won't get that acute sense of noticing and thinking. I'm, I'm more likely to start going, oh, I'm going to cook for tea or other <laughs> jobs that need doing or, or whatever. So for me, like, yeah, that focus from the rock and also that I sometimes get when I'm writing a poem. So you can't think about anything else. You have to stay there. Um, I think a poem and a, a single pitch rock climb have quite a lot in common probably that's really interesting I I think you could we had a connection another Yoda moment where I was just thinking oh that sounds a lot like writing really kind of that (laughs) you've got the material of the words and also kind of the history of everything that's gone behind you as well that's kind of your raw material like a rock face in a way and then you've got to kind of jigsaw it together which you do so beautifully in your work as we were saying about kind of taking actually quite difficult kind of messy ideas and then bringing this kind of lyrical sort of like quite well precision to it as well um it it sounds very much like your kind of approach to to the rock face and climbing as well so that's really cool they're they're both they're both embodied the writing is embodied as well Um, and we've we've talked about and around that a lot and I think that's that's the thing it's um it's it's what you called um, it's resisting what you what you called um, which felt very accurate to me that disassociated state. I think mm-hmm. writing and I'm sure other forms of art um, and um, exercise or climbing, running stuff like that they return us to ourselves and return mm-hmm. us to our bodies, and that's they they sort of they're a nice antidote to the rest of our lives in which we're increasingly um digital and estranged from from the kind of ideas of our of our of our bodies or sorry not the ideas what i mean is well we're more kind of thinking of the body as an idea rather than as a a a physical thing an entity and part of how we think um so it's no surprise that, that, you know, things like running are becoming increasingly popular. I think lots of people need that return and that, that way of making them feel differently or think differently. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you sort of touched there on the idea that writing and movement, whether it be running or climbing, they are inherently political as well, because there's the idea of bringing ourselves back to ourselves and they're yeah. about identity and, and and what that means to us and that is that is a political act as well so you can't kind of disengage yourself if you're a runner if you're a climate if you're a writer you are in that discourse and trying to kind of re figure out where you fit in and and what you mean to yourself as well <laughs> I think it's 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 like going back to your lovely idea of the dangerous woman in some way. <laughs> I think the more we think like that, the more we think and be in the way that running enables and that like writing enables, the more dangerous we are. Uh, I think it's good to aspire to be viewed as a little bit dangerous um, because it it kind of means you're 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 challenging or you're doing something or you you're sort of out there having a go. Um, which is all we can do, really. Be more so, dangerous. It's a resistance. <laughs> it's, a, it's a way of resisting the dominant narrative or lack of narrative, whatever it might be, yeah. I love that. And just a few quick-fire questions, three quick-fire mm-hmm. questions. What advice would you give to a younger Helen? 
you do not have to be good. <laughs> I think that's what I yes, would say. Right. <laughs> You've given me that answer. I've stolen that. Um, but yeah, I think that would that would cover it, really. You do not have to be good. Be dangerous. Don't have to be good. Love yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. um, what are you reading at the moment? Oh, um, this is a great question. So I don't worry about myself if I don't write for a period of time. I've, I've, I'm quite relaxed about that. I just have fallow spells when I'm not able to write and I only worry if I'm not reading if I'm not reading something's wrong um there's something not okay uh, for me so I always always have um uh, books on the go at the moment I'm reading um Deborah Levy's um uh kind of Oh, blimey, I'm going to have forgotten the the, uh, the name of it now, but it's her it's her writing about being a writer yeah. and writing about the process of writing. I love I love articulate people talking about the thing that they do. It's just so exciting to see that, and that book's no exception. And I just read Swimming Home, also by her, so it was nice to read the novel and then that. Um, I, I like to have quite a lot of books on the go, actually, mm-hmm. in different genres, so... Uh, I'm also reading uh, a book called Bitch, which is about female creatures. Have you seen this book? Uh, no, but I was Great. listening to the Future Noughts podcast the other day and she came on and they were discussing this book and I was just like, I need to get this book. <laughs> it's, just... it's so good. You won't be disappointed. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's made me rethink my ideas about science and sort of received wisdom. It's um yeah, it's brilliant. And I'm also reading a book of poetry, um, Heritage Aesthetics by Anthony Anaxaguru, which is also fantastic. So yeah, I kind of have poetry, non-fiction, fiction usually on the go at once. The only ones that I like to sort of read in one go if I can is a novel. If I get really caught up in the story, I have to I have to sit there until I've finished it, which is I'm so glad exciting. that you're also someone with like little book stacks because I, I have them the sort of like the, the bed stack and then there's the kind of like the coffee table stack and like another little stack somewhere that get <laughs> I think it's good. It just means it means we have curious minds. We like to know about lots of things Absolutely. at the same time. I'm gonna take that and thank you for those that was a quite a selfish question really I just wanted to know what you had some recommendations what are you reading what am I reading at the moment I just finished Amy Liptrot's the um the out run and I'm actually moving on to her next one um then I've also got Dirt Road Revival which is about rural politics in America by Chloe Maxim and Canyon Woodward I'm also reading Damien Damien Hall's book at the moment um and what else have I got there was something else I've got. Um, I have to send it to you afterwards. Can't remember. <laughs> I, I was thinking about Amy Liptrot and her second book, um, The Instant, last mm-hmm. night because of the moon. Because I think that book starts with with one of my favourite ever first lines for a book. It's something something along the lines of I've been getting text messages from the moon. <laughs> it's just, uh, and I was thinking last night, I was thinking what kind of text would the moon send tonight? Oh, it's such a full, cold moon. Oh, that's um, so good. I read the first, so I finished the outrun and then I started the first page and I just thought this is so good that I can't, I can't read it when I'm really tired. Like, it's yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I read that line and I was like, this is too, it's too good to like, not, 
not be processing this properly. You've so got to got... savor it. It's so poetic. Yeah, so I'm going to save it. Obviously, I just read, just finished your book as well a couple of weeks ago. Oh, yes. But... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I'm very honoured. So I'll do, um... a, do, a, do a shout out for, for reading Helen's book because it is, I mean, I've, I've waxed lyrical about it before, but it's just so, so wonderful and something that should be read. <laughs> so I've got oh, one final you. question, which I ask everyone is, what does joy mean to you? Oh, what a great, great question. We should all ask ourselves that more often. Um, joy to me is a day or a part of a day somewhere. That, I don't know if this is a metaphor, if it's it's kind of both, because um, I have had these days. But on, on, a, on a sort of a ridge or a plateau, I'm thinking of somewhere like the Fairfield Horseshoe in Cumbria um, with a clear sky preferably a dog with me um, and a nice sort of gentle downhill with views, not a steep downhill, a nice kind of undulating um, path back to the back to a village, um, knowing that there's a pub at the end of it and maybe a book in my rucksack to read when I get there. That's, that's, that would be a moment or a, a, a spell of joy for me, I think. <laughs> a day a bit like that that is so lovely that's like a description of a brilliant date as well can we go on a friend date and do that only then at the end of the day we have to go and get um, uh, you do not have to be good yeah as a small tattoo somewhere go to the pub and then and then get tattooed it's <laughs> great <laughs> I'll say a formal uh, a formal goodbye for the podcast um, and then if you just hang on for, for a minute to, <laughs> to discuss when we're going to do that um, but thank you so much Helen I wish I could just I mean I just want to like bottle up our whole conversation <laughs> because um, it, like it's just been such a pleasure and a joy and like if, if joy was something to me in this moment like just chatting to you over the past two days now has just been that and I really hope that other people can take so much from all of the wise, interesting, and just so so articulate and wonderful things that you've had to say, both about motherhood, running, perceptions of ourselves, identity, writing, anything. Like I, I think that if anything, it just advocates to everyone that you don't have to be one thing. You can be this wonderful melting pot of brilliant, shining things um, that just bring so much light to the world. So thank you for being Aww. such an inspiration. And I hope also now a friend, <laughs> because I just feel really privileged to have had this have yeah. this chat. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I don't normally enjoy thinking about <laughs> questions as much as this it's been revelatory and wonderful and just a lot of fun oh, so thank you great for, for your work and for the the podcast it seems it's been lovely just hooray hooray be more dangerous and <laughs> live life thank you so less much good. <laughs> be less good thank you so much helen I am so grateful to the community that is growing around the podcast and if you've enjoyed today's episode I would so appreciate if you can share it with your communities and help spread the message of support, perseverance and joy further. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future guests you can find me on Instagram at running underscore on underscore joy. I'd love to hear from you. 
Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time for Running on Joy.